Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Food is life. Create and savor yours. This is your culinary playground, and you can take a dip with me into the world of all things food. It's an easy way to get your quick fix of culinary entertainment every weekend. So whether you're thinking about Sunday dinner or planning this week's meals, I hope that you'll love listening to this show. You'll hear recipes, tips, and fun food discoveries, along with cocktail and wine pairings, of course. There's great advice and inspiration from a team of experts, chefs, and food lovers, and from cookbook authors and celebrity TV chefs, health experts, trendsetters, artisans, sommeliers, and more. So be sure to tune in because this show will feed your soul. You'll find me at chefjamie.com, always serving up seconds. And on social media, you'll find my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. I like to kick off this show with uh, gastronomic inspiration of sorts before we lead into grand guests. And I don't mean to boast, but I made a salt block grilled chicken this past week for dinner and it was luscious. (laughs) I spatchcocked the bird or took the backbone out so that it could lay flat and chill in a lemon, rosemary, olive oil marinade. Then I grilled it skin side down with a salt block on it to press the chicken into the grates of my grill. I turned it over, continued cooking, and it was so delicious with crispy skin and juicy meat and fabulous flavor and all. And since summer is quickly approaching and spring has definitely sprung, it is time to dust off your barbecue, depending upon where in the country you are, do some spring cleaning and get ready to grill. Now, I'm a Southern California girl at the grill, and so I grill year round. And I find there are always new tips and tricks to learn from great grill masters. They always have a few tricks up their sleeve. And I would like to humbly include myself in that lineup for just a moment. I love to barbecue. I do. And I want to prep you for summer by arming you with my secret weapon when it comes to grilling and chilling. It's a salt block. I love my salt blocks, by the way, and I use them year round for everything from serving sashimi to using it as a brick on my barbecue. So if you have one or you wanted to learn more, here is your salt block tutorial. So Himalayan salt is a rock salt that is mined from 500 million year old salt deposits. And the salt is very pure and unadulterated and it's mined in large boulders and then it's cut or ground to the necessary dimensions from massive salt block platters that one can buy to the powder that you buy that is the fine finishing salt called Himalayan. Now, salt block cooking and its rage is growing. You can find salt blocks, uh, which are usually in the form or size of what you would consider a brick, and they sell salt block plates, and you can use them for everything, sauteing, grilling, chilling, literally, curing, baking, salting, and even plating. Now, 
the salt's crystal lattice has a very high specific energy. So what that does is it lends itself to holding any temperature you bring it to for a really wonderfully long while. And due to its lack of moisture, the uh, block itself can very safely heat or chill to an extreme. So they've actually tested salt blocks from zero degrees Fahrenheit up to 900 degrees Fahrenheit, which I find fascinating. And the salt blocks withstand the temperature differential. Now, here are a couple of important facts about a salt block that you'll want to know. Using a salt block to season food adds really what I would consider minimal saltiness compared to say, you know, ground salt. And the high quantity of trace minerals like calcium, potassium, magnesium, they import a more mild and fuller sort of taste to the salt. So there's another level of complexity in the food. So now that you're armed with that knowledge and you can allow that fear of oversalting to dissipate, here are a few of my favorite uses for a salt block. So you can arrange thinly sliced carpaccio or sashimi on a cold salt platter and serve it and watch as the thin sliced protein salt cures at the table. It gently cooks the edges and it brings on just a, a bit of that mineral rich saltiness. It's brilliant. You can place a salt block under the broiler, wait 30 minutes, then remove the tile with a kitchen glove. You set it on a good heavy-duty trivet at the table, and you can do Korean barbecue style, sauteing thin slices of meat. You could do fish. You could do veggies. Everyone looks on with awe and disbelief and dawning admiration until they get involved and pick up the chopsticks. And the food takes on a, a light, subtle saltiness. It's seasoned, really. And that salt block, that heat retains so that you can continue to cook. Now, going back for a moment, you can actually refrigerate and freeze a salt block as well. And there are multiple uses for it. Now at room temperature, I use my salt block as a brick for the chicken that I mentioned on the grill. It adds flavor, although I have already seasoned the chicken, by the way, in the marinade, but its weight also adds to that crisp, delicious skin that everyone loves. So why use a brick on your grill when you could use a salt block? I've actually seen a chef friend use their salt block on a stuffed trout on the grill, uh, which was really fabulous. So be sure to stuff it with lemon and fennel and the fennel fronds and try that too. Now, on a wilder side, um, I have seen a suggestion for heating a large Himalayan salt platter on an outdoor gas grill. You butter the salt platter you throw on uh, sliced bananas, you douse it with bourbon, you ignite it and watch it flambe. And then you put scoops of vanilla bean ice cream over that. And you have this sort of salted, seductive, caramelized banana dish. I, I just saw it recently and I haven't had a moment to make it, but trust me, I will tell you all about it. Summer's coming and it might be my... Um, Wow, summer dessert. You have to say it that way. Wow, summer dessert. Uh, as I mentioned, you can freeze a Himalayan salt block at least a couple of hours, and then you take it out, put it on the table, and you're a culinary hero when you plate up scoops of ice cream or sorbet on it. Getting back to the basics, 
You can always use it as a serving platter as well, uh, cold or even at room temperature, preferably at room temperature. I like to put uh, a stick of butter on it and serve it with bread at the table. And it takes some time for the salt to infuse, the block to infuse in the butter itself. But you'll find uh, that come, you know, the bottom of the of the brick of butter is more seasoned than the top. It's a beautiful presentation though. And then you could serve a charcuterie board or a cheese board on a salt block. Um, you could do uh, your favorite sushi with pickled ginger and wasabi. Uh, alongside it. And then lastly, if you have never sliced vine ripened summer fresh tomatoes and placed them on a salt block and adorned it with buffalo mozzarella or burrata with basil for the ultimate caprese salad, it is a brilliant presentation and just wait until you taste it. And with all that said, I suggest that you invest in a salt block now to add fabulous flavor and creativity to your dishes. And you'll have it for a long time, by the way, because they last what is almost forever. To clean a salt block, you just use a scrubber sponge and hot water, and then you pat it dry with a paper towel, and you store it back in the cabinet, and you're good to go. I have a salt block everywhere. I keep one in the hutch where all of my buffet pieces are, so I can use that solely for butter at the table with bread. I keep a brick in the drawer of my Twin Eagles grill, so I have that salt block for the barbecue. And then I keep one in the kitchen, hot or cold, um, from the freezer to the oven. So if you don't own one already, it's time to buy a salt block or a brick or a salt platter. And if you're using your salt block in new and wonderful ways, I'd love for you to share your best inspiration. You can always email me, of course, jamie at chefjamie.com will get you to me directly. And please don't touch your dial because coming up, author Becky Selengut is here. And from shellfish to finfish, we're talking good fish. Pescatarians and fish lovers unite. That conversation is next. And before the end of the hour, we'll visit Japan to celebrate their culinary culture. Oh, there's so much fabulous food in your radio. We'll take a quick break. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen, and we'll be right back. have all the delicious inspiration you need every weekend in your radio. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen here. There is glory in fresh fish and Becky Selengut's Bible, a love story to Pacific Coast fisheries, gives you the feeling that Becky is standing at the fish counter with you or knee deep in the Puget Sound pulling in the catch and it will hook you. Being re-released in an expanded and updated second version, Good Fish highlights 20 varieties from shellfish to finfish 
And Becky shares a truly deep education into sustainable seafood and the throngs of recipes you can make with your scallops and your salmon and your squid to come alive with flavor. Becky Selengut, chef and seafood advocate, is here to teach us a few fish lessons. And I'm very glad to have you. Hi, Becky. Hi, Jamie. How's it going? It's going great. Thank you. And I'm hungry from the really brilliant pages of your book. Um, congratulations. So it's, it's a Thank lovely, you. it's a lovely homage to fresh fish of all kinds, the little fish and the big fish. Yeah. I love, especially the little fish. <laughs> I know, I know you do. And we'll talk about that, but lay down some rules first, if you would teach us your acronym for fish. That was fabulous. Most importantly, I think that, that people become very um, simplistic and black and white about it. Like, yes. like you said, you know, only buy wild. And they're forgetting that, that um, you know, probably uh, over 90% of the, the seafood, uh, the shellfish sold in this country is, is farmed shellfish. Hmm. So there's a whole world of, of aquaculture that's do, doing very little harm to the environment, if any. And um, I would point to shellfish uh, being a, a great source of sustainable seafood. And um, it's not wild necessarily. It's, it's, uh, it's grown. Um, that being said, it's very different than other kinds of farmed fish where they have to do, you know, um, uh, use other fish to feed them and maybe use antibiotics and other different kinds of things that have um, um, repercussions for the environment or for your personal health. So, so farms can be okay, and you just want to check that out a little bit. Um, the I stands for to, to, to ask, um, to investigate a little bit. You have to be a little bit of a reporter when you're trying to um, eat sustainable seafood. And what I find easiest, actually, is just to align yourself with those restaurants that are already um, interested in the same things that you are. So mm-hmm. if they care about the environment, then you can trust that you can eat there and they're going to be doing their homework. Um, markets that have said that they source sustainable fish, you know, do a little research on them, and if, if um, that uh, uh, passes a sniff test to you, uh, <laughs> uh, then, go, then go for it. And then uh, S is smaller is better. Um, it really does make more sense for human beings to be eating the, the little fish than for us to be turning it into chicken feed or pig feed or skin care products or all the different um, things that... The bounty of, of little fish in the sea are being used for, actually. And if you go all over the world, you, you can see that sardines and anchovies and uh, herring and smelt and all these different kinds of little fish species are being eaten every single day. And uh, they're so good for your health, and they're, they're so delicious. They are. I agree. Um, I, I grew up in New York. I'm uh, Jewish, so I, I grew up on pickled herring. So hmm. I have a real love for the the little fish that have real flavor to them. And um, so, you know, if, if you listen to this and, and that sounds like something you love, then you're my, you're my kind of people. Yes, and I, I grew up uh, in a Jewish household as well. And pickled herring, preferably with sour cream and onions, I would sit down yes. with a glass of wine with you anytime. Anytime. Um, and, and yes, anytime. Bre- breakfast, lunch, then- or dinner. Exactly. Yes. And then, of course, paired with sour cream, which is like, you know, Jewish mayonnaise. Yes. But, um. <laughs> Isn't that true? That's very <laughs> funny. And then the H, I think, really resonates because it's the, it's the culmination of your book. Yeah. So it doesn't matter where you live. I mean, um, I live in Seattle, and, and the book is, is primarily focused on Pacific fish, but these fish also you can get all over the world. Right. Um, you know, there's nowhere that wild salmon doesn't find its way into the marketplace. Hmm. So 
what I'd like to just say is, if you're living in the United States and listening to this, just source your seafood from um, ideally the United States and, and even more ideal um, from somewhere near where you, where you are if you live on the coast or if you're getting fresh fish um, uh, uh, near near uh, a lake near you. I mean, right. it's just find the fish that, that are, are close to your environment, and, and if, if that doesn't work and you're in a completely, you know, landlocked, waterless state in the United States, then uh, order your fish and um, or, or get it from a place that is domestically uh, sourced. Because nice. we just have much better standards for for fishing in this country than a lot of other countries. And so that's just one real easy thing you can do, and you don't have to think about it any more than that. Just buy local, buy domestic. You've already solved so many of the problems. Yeah, the H in fish for home. I was interested to read that fish production is associated with four times lower greenhouse gas emissions than beef, according to research done by Carnegie Mellon, right? And I think that we really need to be thoughtful of that when we pick our protein for dinner. I loved as well, I was very pleased to read in your preface that since your first release of the book in 2011, you've seen growth in the seafood industry in your incredible research, and there's really good news on the sustainable front. So we are taking two steps forward, are we not? I do think so, especially yes. especially in the United States. We, we, we really ha- there have, you know, there's always a couple little mini steps back, but in general, it seems that we're getting the message that um, aquaculture needs to be done in a, in a, a certain kind of way. Right. We need to move towards more uh, environmentally friendly ways to farm fish. And it also feels that the, the fishery management um, ha- that we've enacted over the last 10 years has actually started to see some rebounds in certain populations. Mm-hmm. So we're starting to see some results here, and uh, it's very it's positive. So yes, I just encourage wonderful. people to eat lower on the food chain, and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I'm not a, a purist in any sense, and I never want to put truly any kind of restrictions on, on anyone or, or judge anyone's diet, but the way I really like to eat is um, mostly a, a pescatarian diet, mostly fish and vegetables, and then, you know, I use I use meat as a garnish sometimes, you know, that's how I think of it, like, it's a special mm-hmm. thing, you know, I'm going to have a, you know, a grass-finished steak, and it's delicious, and, yes. you know, oh, I'm going to have a roast chicken, and but in general, for my day-to-day diet, it's fish and veg, you know, and I love it. And and I think that is a wonderful way to live. I know I feel better eating that way. And you you could eat a different fish all season long, as long as you're conscious of what the freshest offering is at the moment, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the reason why I mention that is just because some people demand like high quality fresh fish of the same species year round all and what the that time. does is it push it, it push puts pressure on the marketplace to be shipping fish all over the world. Hmm. And if you actually just go with the the, the seasons uh, the seasons and in w- where you live if you're on in the coast, you'll find that there is a, a, a difference and it does it does come and go and the, the fishing seasons are determined by the weather and the runs and how the fish are running up the coast and all of a sudden you realize, oh now we're you know, ha- fresh halibut is coming from Alaska. If, mm-hmm. You know, you're on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, now we're in coho season, you know, which is silver salmon. You know, oh, sardines are, are running. And so it's August and I, I got some fresh sardines. Um, Ooh, invite so- me over. <laughs> I will. Becky, if you please pause there, we'll take a quick break. There's more good fish in your radio right after this. 
We're back and we're dishing with Becky Selengut, author of Good Fish, on the best from finfish to shellfish, pescatarians and fish lovers unite. I think there are some lessons to learn here. By the way, if you've just tuned in, you're late because Becky <laughs> Selengut is here, the author of Good Fish, with a fully updated and expanded version of the cookbook just released and an incredible education for fish lovers everywhere. Um, let's cook. Um, please, if you would, sear a scallop to perfection for us, Becky, because from my days in culinary school, I will concur with you that this is a high heat, no fear, gotta have some patience kind of skill. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I, I always, I even wrote into the book kind of like anticipating the resistance that I'm going to get (laughs) from many home cooks because I've been teaching cooking for 15 years now and it's, I, I see them nod their head when I say use high heat, and then I also can read their mind. You know, I'm going to turn that down. There's no way I'm going to use high heat in my house, you know. Right. And I'm just like, you know, you got to push through because, you know, as restaurant chefs, we know that they're, you know, this this is this is uh, why the food comes out so different than at home, but you can absolutely do it the same at home. And I recommend getting a shower cap at your local um, pharmacy and putting it over your smoke detector, and hopefully the fire department's not listening to this. No. You know, mm-hmm. opening up your windows a little bit. Yes. You know. put, on, put on the kitchen fan. Put on the kitchen fan. Yes. And then, and then be brave because you, you, you need to have that high heat and use a, an, an oil that can take that high heat. So that would be a, a vegetable oil like safflower or sunflower, canola or avocado oil or anything like that. And then you, you want to make sure your scallops are dry. So I, I dry them off with a paper towel. Make sure you've sourced really good uh, scallops. Uh, make sure that you're trying to sear the, the bigger scallops, the, the weather veins from Alaska, for example, um, not the little tiny sea scallops. Those are not the ones. By the time you sear one of those, there'll be little rubber rubber balls. Yes, no um, doubt. And then you want to dry off your your uh, scallop. Make sure your your, uh, your pan is nice and hot. I, I recommend cast iron, but any skillet will do. Just make sure it's not not a nonstick, which is not designed to to go that high. And then put the scallop down and here's the hardest part for for almost everybody. You have to just stand there and do nothing. Well, no, that's when and you drink Chardonnay. Becky. Oh, there you go. So you yes. want to you want to stand there and wait for the time it takes you to drink a half a glass of Chardonnay before you even look at the scallop. Right, slowly in between conversation, not gulping. Exactly. Yes. And then you want to be you want to take all that bravery and you want to dial that back and be very timid now and you want to take your tongs and you want to lightly pick up the edge of the scallop and you want to look deeply into that underside and and see if it's nice and deeply brown. And if you have my book in front of you, you want to compare the color to the picture um, on the uh, in the book, right. and it should be nice and, and, and kind of mm. caramel brown. Serious and caramelization, yes. Yeah, exactly. Which is, um, and then and only then do you lightly flip it over, and then you should only cook it on the opposite side for for a very short time, really, because you want to serve your scallops ideally in uh, medium rare in the middle. Right. So. Um, mm. Yeah, so that should be uh, pretty much your perfect scallop at that point. Yes, and and oh, it's so much. It's so much so is. Um, Let's make mussels with Guinness cream before I let you go because that recipe totally excited me. So you've got this rich, dark bitterness of the Guinness offset with a little bit of heavy cream to round it all out. And that feels so... uh, 
New Orleans to me, right? Like just that like uh, flavor bomb. Yeah, so I, I, I came up with this recipe, as, as I'm sure you, you do as well, somewhat by accident. Yes. I, a friend brought over some Guinness Extra Stout, and we were drinking it, and uh, I went to the store. We got some mussels that looked really good. We came back. I had half of a can of uh, uh, the, the stout left, and I was like, mm, all right, let's try this. There we go, it right. Quite, it was quite bitter when I first tried the sauce, and I'm like, oh, this is really, really bitter. So I, I added a little bit of honey, and I added the, the cream and a little extra salt to actually tone down some of that bitterness. And with all of that, it, it just became oh. this decadent, really unusual flavor and so I, I was good. hooked. Oh, it looks so good. Um, there is a recipe in your book and it's called the easiest recipe in this book. <laughs> I I loved the title itself. Uh, describe it, please. Um, would you like me to read the head note? I'd love it actually. Yes. It's okay. just so whimsically okay. written. It, it sort of speaks for itself here. Um, right. The easiest recipe in this book. We need more honesty in cookbooks. What if authors titled their recipes more accurately? For example, in quotes, this recipe will take you days, or $56 worth of ingredients. Or how about, not as good homemade as in my restaurant. That has happened to many home cooks. Yes. Or, you've never heard of four of the ingredients, and you're going to go to three stores looking for them. <laughs> and then I have to give a shout-out to my friend Jill, because this was her brilliant little one that she came up with. Quote, go ahead and substitute half the ingredients with other things. Right. Or what you have, right, on hand. Yes. Yeah. But it really, this is truly the easiest uh, recipe in the book. And um, I love it because it, it, it depend, no, no matter what is at the market, no matter what state in the country you live in, um, the, the, the process is the same. And it, it is just so simple. And, and people are always asking me, like, well, what is cooking fish is so hard and so difficult. And this is a pretty much um, idiot-proof, as my grandmother would say, idiot-proof yes. recipe for you. And it just involves a... Uh, some aluminum foil and and putting in whatever seasonal vegetables. For example, in the one here, it's corn and tomatoes and green onions. So clearly, mm. maybe an August recipe here. Yes. You toss the vegetables with some oil. You spread them out. Sprinkle on some sea salt, some lemon zest. You put you put the fish on top. You add a little soy sauce, a um, little bit of cayenne, and then you just lay some lemon slices and and basil leaves over that pat of butter. Cover it up with more foil. Make a make a package. Throw it in your oven, set a timer for eight minutes, and then you just serve it right from that foil. You put it on a plate; it's really rustic, yeah. or you can slide it off onto a plate. This is what I take car camping. Oh, I love and it! We go car we go we go car camping every summer. Yeah, and I make these foil packages of, of fish and vegetables in the in the morning, and I have them. You know, we're going with a couple, another couple. We have four of them. We put them in the cooler. We get to the campsite. We start a fire. We put them on top of the fire. Eight minutes later, I pull them off, and we all have this amazing gourmet dinner, and it was so stupidly simple. Right, and it's brilliant, and I love that you end the recipe by saying, uh, feel like a rock star, because you do. I mean, when you learn to cook fish properly, when it's brilliantly flavorful and seasoned and so flaky and delicious, how could you not love it? The book is a wonderful education. Congratulations to you. Um, oh, and thank you so much, Jamie. I really appreciate the lessons. I can't wait to make olive oil poached albacore and wahoo with orange chili caramel. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. And um, yeah. please come back because we know that your prose 
are um, being published constantly at the moment, in fact, um, with a, a new book just released as well called How to Taste. And we're going to talk next month, you and I, um, so that we can uh, perfect our palate, right? Yep. Uh, for sure, I'll be back. I can't wait. I look forward to it. Good Fish, the cookbook is a wonderfully helpful resource for responsible seafood lovers. It has a wide range of scrumptious recipes and you can learn more and find tips and techniques on Becky Selling Guts website at goodfishbook.com. And the book is available at Amazon and fine bookstores everywhere and follow Becky's Fishy Adventures at Becky Selengut, S-E-L-E-N-G-U-T. And so now it's time for food news this week. Ah, here's some good news you can use. If you were a vegetarian heading to Shake Shack, the much beloved burger joint brought to us by the genius that is Danny Meyer, for years uh, you were in the company of meat-loving friends, but your only option as a vegetarian was what they call the shroom burger, which was a fried portobello mushroom patty that still exists. Uh, There is... A new vegetarian option. They just began testing in store at Shake Shack a full on veggie burger so that they can enter into the highly competitive and ever growing non meat burger space. So, how does the veggie shack, as they call it, stack up? Well, the patty itself is comprised of black beans, brown rice, and roasted beets. And it includes provolone cheese, lettuce, onions, and pickles. And there's a vegan mustard mayo on it. So if you taste it, let me know. Or I'll just see you at a Shake Shack soon. How's that? Yeah, we'll meet for a burger. Sounds good to me. (laughs) Stay tuned. There are more lessons to learn and more fabulous food in your radio right after this. Your culinary playground. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen here. Ramen bars and sushi joints, no doubt growing in popularity as we continue our obsession with the health benefits associated with Japanese cooking. But there is so much more to authentic Japanese cuisine than just raw fish and sticky rice and meaty broths. There is a striking manuscript, an impressive encyclopedia just released called Japan, the Cookbook, written by a widely respected and acclaimed food writer. Nancy Singleton Hachisu culminated a collection of over 400 recipes of traditional and authentic Japanese dishes from 70s and 80s Japan. 
The iconic and regional traditions are organized by course and contain really insightful notes alongside the recipes. The dishes, soups and noodles, rice, pickles, one pots, sweets, vegetables, they're all simple, they're elegant, and the astounding knowledge bound between the hardcovers is show-stopping. Nancy Singleton Hachisu is here to dish, and Nancy, I'm very glad to have you. Welcome back. Jamie, yes, it was quite the project. I can imagine. When you were presented with this idea of a distinctive collection as such, uh, what did you think? Was it an overwhelming, daunting task or one you couldn't wait to fulfill? Um, I, I guess I would say it was something that I couldn't wait to fulfill, but um, I, uh, I mean, I said yes immediately, uh, knowing that it would be huge. And working for a different publisher than I had done the previous two books with, I knew it would be another kind of hurdle in the... But I, it was something that I needed to do at that point. I'm glad I did it at that point in my in my course of writing books, um, and I will never do it again. <laughs> I <laughs> right. mean, I'll write another book, but um, yes. it's kind of a you know 400 recipes is is, is just it's a lot. But um, it it was something you know you you present you present challenges to yourself, and then you meet them and you feel like you you know really accomplished something. And so yeah, I'm glad I did it and. Um, very proud of it. And, and you should be. It is a, a, an incredible accomplishment and one that I think I know will go down in the record books as um, historical information. And I think that must make you so very proud. Can we talk about your obsession with Japan's culinary culture? What compelled you to move to Japan in the 1980s? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't go as far as to say it's an obsession. It's um, maybe more like it's in my blood because mm. um, I did go to Japan because I loved sushi and um, and I wanted to learn Japanese but and I was going as an English teacher which so many people do but um, the I only really intended to stay for a year I was going to go back um, to graduate school and um, get a JD uh, become a lawyer and I thought uh, getting some another language under my belt uh, and Japanese would be useful. Um, and again, it was because I love sushi. Um, it's mm-hmm. not just the food, it was also the, the feeling of sushi. There was something very appealing about the whole, I mean, how I felt when I went to a small sushi bar, and I always had my favorite place. Um, mm-hmm. And then, um, as I've cooked all my life, I um, started immediately cooking Japanese food by watching late-night TV, <laughs> watching yes. travel shows and cooking shows, and I couldn't understand anything, but I could see what they were doing, and so I just made this these stir-fried m- with egg dishes that I actually never ate again until I found all this other material from the 70s, 80s. And so, you know, it was not something my, my husband cooked, but a lot of other people cooked them. Um, sure. So there's some egg stir-fries um, in, the, in the book. Um, but anyway, uh, my husband is an amazing Japanese cook because he's, he's Japanese and he's, he grew up on a farm and his grandmother taught he and his brothers to cook. Um, and so I let him do the Japanese cooking because, you know, we have three sons and busy. We both have home businesses. 
uh, and then it just came a point in my life where I was ready to start writing cookbooks because that was what I had wanted to do as an adult. Um, and um, it seemed like everybody wanted me to write the Japanese cookbook. Hmm. And so it was in my blood, and I did. And, and it, you did, no and doubt. <laughs> and, I, and I like my food better now than my husband's food just because it's, you know, it's my taste. Thank you for sharing your passion for stopping by. I really appreciate it. Nancy Singleton Hachisu lives on a farm in Japan with her family. She is a James Beard Award-nominated author of her two previous cookbooks, More on the Way. And this new and unbelievably impressive manuscript is entitled Japan, the Cookbook, with more than 400 sumptuous recipes for iconic traditional Japanese dishes. You can get the scoop at Nancy Singleton Hachisu.com and follow her on social at Nancy Hachisu. I loved the pickled everything book, Nancy. So keep, keep the pickling coming, please. Okay, thank you. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of gastronomic inspiration. And because a meal is a terrible thing to waste, I hope that you'll tune in every weekend to allow me to feed your soul. You'll find podcasts of shows you might have missed on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Of course, I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com and you'll find this recipe posted on social, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. It's my last bite for the hour. I call it my easy peasy cheesy pesto chicken. And this recipe can literally be thrown together in five minutes. It's my hands down favorite, what I call real food for real life meal. Because the bonus is everyone seems to love it. And it's just simply delicious. It's light and perfect for spring and summer. It's juicy chicken topped with fresh pesto, melty mozzarella, and vine-ripened tomatoes. So how bad could it be, right? You need four preferably organic boneless, skinless chicken breasts, a cup of prepared pesto, either homemade or store-bought, eight slices of mozzarella cheese, and a couple of ripe, beautiful tomatoes. You preheat the oven to 350. You place the chicken breasts in a baking dish. You spoon pesto over top. Then you put a slice or two of mozzarella, I put two, on each chicken breast and top it with a couple of slices of tomatoes. And you bake it for about 25 minutes. I like to broil at the end just so that the cheese gets bubbly and golden. And it really is so easy peasy cheesy good i will once again post the recipe on facebook twitter and instagram at chef jamie gwen and i will meet you here next weekend for more delicious conversation in your radio i thank you for listening i'm chef jamie gwen signing off and i hope you continue to eat well (laughs) 